episode 52 of Slaytanic Vercast. I'm Mo from France, and to my west, broadcasting live from the Aston Villa dressing room following their fifth straight league defeat. It's Dr. Lee Quessens. How you doing, Doc? Um, all right, this morning. It, it, it's, it's, it's not a pleasant place to be. Um, there is no doubt that, you know, decades of despair and hopelessness can contaminate uh, it's it's a bit like the stone tape mate um you know where uh, physical locations that have have witnessed extreme violence can sort of somehow preserve an imprint of it and it it works it 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 works the same you know where you've got the space um where 11 or 13 or 15 men have gathered week after week year after year decade after decade knowing that, well, something bad's going to happen in the next night. Um, it takes a lot to bring me down. Um, yes. when, when you look like I do, um, and just looking in the mirror causes more fear and despair than most people experience in a lifetime. That's right. And, and, and um, you know, for, for people that have joined us late, of course, Dr. Lequescence looks like an, an, an unimaginable horror a Lovecraftian entity that is impossible to describe. For if we did describe it, then we would surely go mad. Isn't that right, Doc? Well, yeah, um, and so would you. Yeah. Um, uh, um, in fact, someone said to me quite recently, well, you, you know, you, you, you must not be able to avoid glimpsing your own visage occasionally. <laughs> How come you don't go mad? And I just have to say, oh, I'm mad. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm already there, brother. <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't, don't, don't doubt that for a second. I'm quite insane. Um, and uh, so it, it, it takes a lot to bring me down.
the Aston Villa dressing room has done it. Yes. Um, the, um, the, the despair and hopelessness is actually, and um, I know it needs one of my nine special eyes that can yes. see spectra beyond human vision, um, but through at least three of my nine special eyes, I can see the despair and hopelessness oozing out of the walls like ectoplasm. Oh, dear, dear, dear. Did, did you catch Dean Smith's team talk by any chance? Or what, what kind of nonsense is he filling their heads with every week, Doc? <laughs> um, I've got no idea. Um, I, used to, I used to enjoy listening to people who weren't footballers talking about football. Um, uh, I, I mean, I... Um, just a, a quick side note. Um, I've been watching quite a bit of um, live. I've been going to quite a few pretty good games of rugby recently, which I've great. been enjoying greatly. Uh-huh. And uh, you'll be aware of the phrase: there are people. Uh, th- there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people. There are people who don't play rugby and don't understand the rules properly, and there are people who play rugby and don't understand the rules uh-huh. properly. Very good. Yeah. Uh, so most people who don't even play are wise enough to keep their mouths shut on the subject, particularly mm. when they're in the presence of people who do. Um, what I love about football is that no one feels these same inhibitions. Everyone in the world is an expert on football and <laughs> feels that sound off like they know what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that there is abundant evidence that even people who get paid obscene amounts of money to know what they're talking about don't know what they're talking about. So what chance do the rest of us have? That's right. There's a great episode of the IT crowd where um, Roy and Moss try to get in with the football crowd and try to learn how to speak football. It's very, very funny. <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> Ray, he's kicked the ball. Now the ball's over there. That man has it now. That's an interesting development. Maybe he'll kick the ball. He has indeed, and apparently that deserves a round of applause. You shut up. They're going to hear you. This is the worst thing in the world. What could I do? He bought the tickets on the phone when we were in the pub. I could hardly say no, could I? Can I use this? I don't know. Just promise me we won't do anything else with them. I want to go back to being weird. I like being weird. Weird's all I've got. That and my sweet style. Okay, look, we'll make our excuses when the match is over. How long do football matches last? A billion hours, apparently. Listen, we're going to play a little poker tonight. Your boys going? I'm in. Must? I won't, Dan, no. Come on. No, no can do. I'm seeing a bird. Oh, really? Yeah, why not? What's she like? Well, she's uh, not much to look at, but she's very kind-eyed. So, as I say, I've got a vermouche. Well, you're not watching it. They're having a laugh today. Well, they're winning. Yeah, they're having a laugh. Yeah, yeah. Did you, you know, try to be proper like, basic blokes, you know. Or did you see the match last night? They've got no idea what match they're talking about, you know. Or, or that new that new player's something, isn't he? Not a single clue what they're talking about. Yeah, so just talking generics. <coughs> Put the ball uh, over there. Square it. Square it. What the fuck are you talking about? But you see, even that takes on a nostalgic tinge nowadays because... Yeah. Um, I want to cram myself into my flesh suit um, to at least appear vaguely human. 
even if I don't smell vaguely human. Um, when I cram myself into my flesh suit and take, take public transportation of any kind, so when I'm on the bus or the train, and it's not unusual to hear people talking about football, and, mm. and, and putatively it would be interesting. Um, but, I mean, nobody even pretends to talk about a game of football anymore. And the only thing you hear, like, ad nauseam forever, uh, they should sack the manager. Yeah, they should sack the manager. The manager's no good. No, the manager's no yeah. good. He doesn't spend enough on players. No, he doesn't spend enough. And, oh, my God, it's boring. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and money as well. That's the other aspect, isn't it? You know, to talk about how much players are worth. Um, um, what happened to the game? What happened to the beautiful game? Um, I think it's got to the stage now where it's the equivalent of um, people people who gamble on craps. Um, I don't think they really care about the mechanics of dice rolling. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think that the game of football is now like the tedious necessity that happens in the middle so that the real business of horse trading players and um, criticising the manager mm. and um, having one of those floor-length puffer jackets. There's a lot of willy-waving going on as well, isn't there, Doc? You know, people talking about, oh, you know, my squad's bigger than your squad. You know, oh, my, my dad's bigger than yours. I think I can beat you up if, if, you, if you don't shut up. If my dad's going to beat you up, eh? Yes, um, uh, and it's... Um, it reminds me of uh, the old joke about, um, you know, uh, my dad's got a tattoo of his a- uh, um, of an anchor on his arm. Yeah, well, my dad's got a tattoo of a knife on his back. Yeah, well, my dad's got a tattoo of a motorcycle on his bum. How do you know? Skid marks in his underpants. Oh, very good. There we go, Doc. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and with that dad joke, should we move on to, um, to topic of the week? Doc, what do you reckon? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, just to, to round that off, my goodness, that makes me feel nine years old again. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I jumped the gun there. We're not going on to topic of the week, are we? Of course, we're going on to new section. What have we been listening to? Do you want to go first? Well, I alluded to this a little while ago. Um, so last week, um, I talked about, on the one hand, um, I've acquired some entertainingly dotty Japanese pop to listen to. Um, and I'll come back to that next week because there's, there's quite a few things that I need to, get, need to listen to a few more times and get squared away in my own head before I talk about. Ooh. I've also been dipping my toes into the very, very brackish, murky waters of mid-1970s AOR. Um, this isn't a place I plan to spend a lot of time because I felt the need to do it to find out whether some of my preconceptions of bleak stroke prejudices were in fact confirmed. And the fact is most of most of my preconceptions and prejudices were um, it's absolute ass. <laughs> Go on, Doc. Um, where the journey was intended to lead me um, <clears throat> was to an album I've been aware of um, since I used to hang around stereo shops that I couldn't afford. Um, and the sort of considered pinnacle of uh, 1970s AOR um, was, uh, is an album called uh, Asia, I believe, by Steely Dan. Hill. People never stand. They just. 
taken it on a few times in the, um, in the last few weeks um, and I've been reading some commentary about it and I even found quite a nice um, documentary about it um, which talks you through it and introduces you to the uh, the dramatis personae mm-hmm. um, and I'm very very far from re-evaluating my impression of the genre almost all of it is ass yeah um yeah. And, but the the sort of one or two albums um that um, I think sort of might might be worth listening to, and and and, and this one in particular. Um, what I'm, I suppose, my, most impressed about is how ambitious and how odd the music is behind its superficially sophisticated exterior. Um, and that sounds contradictory, but. It's so unbelievably well produced and it's so unbelievably well played by a bunch of musicians who are absolutely like amongst the best in the world at what they do. Sure. It's almost impossible to believe there's anything interesting about it. Does mm. that make sense? No, it does, yeah. Almost like, like clinically tooled with a kind of military precision that means it just can't be interesting. Yeah. That, that's, that's almost precisely it. I mean, um, they, they talk about how um, they did 400 takes on one track. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, there was another track where they hired and fired 19 different people to try and play the guitar solo. Oh, Christ. Yeah, yeah. And that, and, and that level of um, um, perfectionism, you, you would assume, would kind of suck any kind of joy or life or energy out of it. But you're saying that's not quite the case, Doc? Well, uh, the impression... I get is that being in a room with Donald Fagan and Walter Becker would uh, suck most of the joy. Um, I, I, I don't. I never get the impression they're fun dudes to hang out with. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think these kind of but, perfectionists, are, you know, they are challenging to be around, aren't they? Obviously, some of Orson Welles is famous for this kind of stuff. Uh, more recently, somebody like David Fincher, if you know, the, the, an, an, another film director, you know, infamously, you know, puts his actors through the ringer. You know, multi- multiple hundreds of takes on particular scenes. Yeah. So um, I think you're really onto something there. I think it's an album you've got to approach in the same way that you'd approach a David Fincher movie or a Stanley Kubrick movie. Sure. Uh, that it's, um, it's somebody or two people, singular vision, um, brought through massive labour um, and incredible amounts of human suffering. Point number one, um, anything else that you believe you have heard that you think is well-produced, this album makes it completely redundant. Um, the production values on this al- uh, on, on that album just completely overshadow anything else I've ever heard in my life. Right. Uh, there's a great anecdote about how one of the drummers they hired, he was listening back to the album at the end, and he said, um, like, you've overdone my, 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 my drums, what did you do that for? And like, no, we didn't. That's the drum track he played. And he goes, no, if you listen, um, there's a hi-hat nuance on there. And I didn't play that. 
um, you must have got somebody else to overdub it and I'm really pissed off. Mm. Um, and I said, no, you played it. It was there. Um, but you've never heard a drum kit mic'd up that well before. You, right. like, you, you played it, but, but you never heard it before. Sure. Isn't that brilliant? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the, there are some fun stories about um, like musicians messing around with them. There was one guy they hired, and um, they hired him for his ability to play to, to play slap bass, and then told him not to play slap slap bass because they wanted to take him out of his comfort zone, and they thought that slap bass was getting too trendy at the time. Sure. Um, and after a couple of weeks, he figured out a way to rig up a room divider in the room so he could sneak in a few sneaky slap riffs when they weren't listening. <laughs> yeah. Um, and obviously, when they went back and obsessively listened to the tracks, they would have realised, and uh, th- this strikes me as a very, very David Friedkin, Stanley Kubrick thing to do, um, they purposefully tricked him into doing the thing that he did best by telling him not to do it. What do you say, David um, Friedkin? Do you mean William Friedkin? Or... I do mean William. I, yeah. I, I absolutely mean William. Yeah, I thought I'd catch that now rather than save it for chow time next, next, next episode. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you for uh, sparing me that humiliation. That's all right. Um, you know, it, it's um, oddly enough for uh, considering that The Exorcist was made almost the same year, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mr. Freakin was like famous for, they obviously had to cool the set down to get Regan's breath missed in certain scenes. Um, mm-hmm. And he would keep people standing around on this refrigerated set for a long time. Yeah. Um, and so the production values are absolutely unparalleled. I've never heard an album that's recorded that well in my life. Sure. Um, and the, the lyrical subject is sort of something I, I'm getting my head around as well, because and we'll, we'll probably come back to this. They've got this, I'm going to call it fascination, but it's simultaneous admiration and contempt for all of these sort of faded hipster characters. Good, Doc. Um, and they're, well, they they appear to write a lot of songs about um, not necessarily aging, but like jazz musicians who've gone a bit beyond their edge or stuck it out like beyond their time a little bit, or sure. um, people who are still hanging around in the East Village when they're probably a little bit too old to be doing stuff like that. And it's it's not just sneering contempt that uh, they're not just sort of looking down on these people. Um, and the way they write, that they've, they've got a simultaneous admiration at the same time. And it, um, there's a track called Peg. There's a track called Deacon Blues, which does that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there's another track on another album um, called Kid Charlemagne, which does that as well. This is another band that's been coming up once or twice in the last few weeks. The simultaneous snark and admiration. I would be really, really shocked if it wasn't some sort of an influence on the lyrical content of Big Black. Oh, yes. Uh, uh-huh. Big Black obviously write about much more wildly extreme. Uh, I mean, Steely Dan write about sort of slightly faded hipsters and slightly laughable aging jazz musicians. And Big Black writes songs about rapists and serial killers and child abusers and yeah. um, like people so crapped in the skull with, PS- uh, with PTSD and stuff like this. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the people they write about um, are not... But it's this sort of simultaneous... I'm going to stick to admiration and contempt, mm-hmm. um, although probably to, to get closer to it, it's just a very cold-blooded journalistic observation. Mm. Um, you piqued my interest, actually, Doc. Steely Dan are a band that, you know, of course I've heard of, and I've heard bits and bobs from them, but they've never in any way enticed me in. Um, like it, just, it just struck me as the kind of, like, hideous, nerdling, blues-infested horror that you'd, you'd always hear some old fart playing when you went into the, into the guitar shop. You're absolutely right. You're, um, if you went into an old muso guitar shop, um, certainly when we were coming up, I haven't been into a guitar shop for a long time, um, mm. but you could, um, you would not be surprised to fight to, to hear someone playing the solo from Bat Jack and do it again. said is absolutely correct steely dan would despised and i mean loathed um almost as much as pink floyd mm. um among sort of um hardcore and new wave um and this might not surprise you to learn um i don't think that was necessarily to do with them i think it was to do with the influence that they had and i mean this this is far from the first time we've talked about a band that's ended up paying unfairly for their pathetic copyists now isn't mm. it yeah, oh, yeah, sure, yeah. I mean, Nirvana are the massive uh, example of that, aren't they? Yeah. Um, Their legacy, you know, I mean, Bleach. 
never mind. Uh, I was about to say, never mind, never mind. How about that? Yeah, you know, even discounting, never mind. you know kids if you haven't done it go and listen go and check out bleach and just hear the rawness on that and you know then, then you had a bunch of fucking grunge wannabes coming along and 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 and, and spoiling the whole fucking thing unfortunately yeah um so i mean there's no doubt steely dan are to blame for um all of that sophisticated um jazz funk blues stuff that you got all the way through the 80s and people bought for no other reason than to have the CD on their glass top coffee table. And the peculiar thing now, I've watched some documentaries and, and, and sort of read some, some commentaries and got to, to learn a bit about the, the personalities of the people of Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. I, I get the idea they would have a really good smile about the fact that they fucked shit up so badly mm. for so long. Mm. I think it would really appeal to the. Uh, I think that would really appeal to their sense of humour. Were, were they big in Britain? Because to me, it's, when I think Steely Dan, I, I think of uh, a bit like uh, what's what's the other band that always makes me think this? Um, oh, Grateful Dead. You know, I think you know these are fucking massive in America, but nowhere else. <clears throat> um, I think they were popular in the UK. Mm. Um, I think though, so I mean, in the in the era of expensive stereos, so roughly from 1975 onwards, um, I think they were one of those bands whose albums you bought just because they that they sounded so great on your excellent stereo. Yeah. Um, and I think they um, they had a bit of cachet. Um, I think it was definitely like um, an album you'd leave lying around your um, green and orange bachelor pad. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> Looking like what's, in, what's the name of the guy? Jason, not Jason Bourne. Jason, what is the Jason fucking guy? King? Jason King. That's it. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. If you um, like, um, when you got your uh, your latest squeeze back to your uh, green and orange bachelor pad, and mm -hmm. you'd obviously scatter a few things around to let everyone know how cool and sophisticated and very slightly edgy you were. Yeah. Um, then you know, um, I think you'd probably have a, a copy of Naked Lunch um, on the uh, on the arm of your brown leather sofa, mm -hmm. um, and I think you'd 
have a copy of The Royal Scam or Asia by Steely Dan um, propped up next to your um, two grand stereo system. <laughs> um, so I think they were popular, um, but obviously being a AOR album-oriented rock band, they never released any... They, they, they released probably only one or two singles ever mm. um, and concentrated on the LPs. And so you, you'll, you'll probably never find them in um, top 40 hits listings. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they were, they were popular enough to be able to spend a year in an expensive studio. Yeah. Making an album. Uh-huh. Um, and I mean, that would have been several thousands. So, I mean, the, 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 they were wealthy enough to have a, a, a million or two million-ish budget to make True. an album. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the record company were confident enough that they were going to recoup their their outlay, basically. Um, yeah, and I mean, famously, they did on advanced sales. Very good. I'll, I'll just I'll be distracted there because I'm just having a look at the Rolling Stone 100 best artists of all time, just to see if uh, Steely Dan crop up in that list, basically. Oh, my God. If, if they're not in the top 20 of Rolling Stone's list, I'd be unbel- great shocked. Yeah, let's see. Let's see, where they, let's see where they come. I just hope it's not one of these pages where you have to... You know, click onto a different page each time you. Well, no, I mean, for what I can see, Doc Steely Dan don't make the don't make the cut for the Rolling for Rolling Stone magazine top hundred bands of all time. I'm I'm, I'm um, astonished. I am going to call straight out revisionism on that. Yeah. You know, it's the same reason that um, any serious critic. Um, didn't dare, uh, when they were compiling their list of 50 best films ever, they didn't dare not put Citizen Kane, Tokyo Monogatari, um, and probably Vertigo as number sure. one, two. And they, they, they didn't dare break that pattern for more than 40 years. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly none of those were even in the top 20 or top 30 anymore. It's astonishing, isn't it? It is astonishing. I'll give you the top 10, just out of curiosity, if I can. Hang on, fuck off, Windows. Here we go. <laughs> 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 the top ten. Here we go. Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, Little Richard, James Brown, Jimi Hendrix, Chuck Berry, um, Rolling Stones, Elvis Presley, Bob Dylan, and have a guess. Number one, of course, the Beatles. Um, is it possible to have a more virtue signalling top ten than that? I know, I know. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would place good fucking money that list wasn't the same ten years ago, Doc. Um, uh, I mean, you know, um, isn't the definition of virtue signalling basically to make it look like you're doing good without actually? I mean, um, you'll notice there isn't actually a black person at number one, two, or three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they're trying their best, Doc. They're trying their best to signal their their, their virtuous intentions. I know, but yeah, God bless them. Um, um, the funny thing about that list makes me realise, uh, uh, makes me think, if you'd have actually had Keith Richards in the room when they were making that list, um, Keith Richards would have sworn at you like a trooper and and and, and forced you to put the Rolling Stones below Chuck Berry. Uh-huh. Doc, um, I've been listening to. Um, 
the new album by the mighty Iron Maiden. We we've mentioned it briefly, but we haven't really we haven't really got stuck into it every properly. Um, well, we've mentioned previously um, holding forth or, or or spouting about first impressions of Iron Maiden albums is 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 often a very unwise thing to do. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm now, I'm now nine or ten listens in basically. Um, so getting to the point where I feel like I've, you know, I've, I've, I've developed an opinion on this particular album. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's a double album. Let's say that for, from the start. And did you, did you just say, oh, no, Doc? No, I just said, oh, wow. Oh, well, you said, oh, no. <laughs> um, it clocks in at one hour, 21 minutes. Um, and that's comprised of just 10 songs. Um, so that gives you an idea of the song song lengths. I mean, it, you know, I'll tell you, average song time is about nine and a half, ten minutes, something like that. Um, the shortest track is five minutes long. No, no, it's four minutes, three seconds long. And the longest track is 12 minutes, 39 seconds. But a good bunch of them are eight or nine minutes plus. Um what do I make of it? The, the album's called Senjutsu. word i wondered if you know what that meant no it, it, it means tactics apparently um okay the, the 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 cover of the album is inevitably um the, the fabulous eddie dressed as a samurai in, in like samurai armor <laughs> absolutely awesome um is it any good it fucking sounds like maiden that's for sure um Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 you know, none more maiden than, than this album. Um, <clears throat> but their progressive tendencies, you know, since they reformed effectively, you know, with, um, what was it called? The, the album with um, Ghost of the Navigator. I just can't think of the of the title of the album. That'll come back to me. Um, but their comeback album, basically, um, <clears throat> you know, following the departure of Blaze Bailey and the reforming yeah, of 
and the rejoining of Bruce and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and Adrian Smith um, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 you know they've gone much more prog and this album is almost like the culmination of it really what it means is you know I think I think you have ten really good kind of densely layered packed with great maiden moments tracks but what you do not have are any like real standout tracks um you know you've got i mean you know go back to the classic days you've got another true is high here. Even, even from the modern iteration of Maiden, you know, you've got no Ghost of the Navigator, you've got no Dance of the Dead. said when it's on it's really really high quality trouble is doc i don't really remember much about it when it's finished um this is a thing that happens to me a lot with progressive rock albums yeah um i mean uh, we've we spent a, a um a few minutes today already talking about stuff that was disliked and despised and downright hated by the community that I came up in. Uh, and one of the counter criticisms was always, um, oh, you kids, you just can't be bothered to put in the effort to really understand anything uh, um, to which the reply was, well, of course not. If it can't make an impression on me in three and a half minutes, I've got other demands on my time. I can't be bothered with it. Sure. Um, and in the end, I've had to come to the conclusion that both of those statements are completely correct. Mm-hmm. Um, if something doesn't make me feel as though I want to listen to it again, 
after one lesson, then I most likely won't. Um, I have more patience and because of, yeah, because of technology. Um, ironically, because of the technology of the 21st century, I'm better able to appreciate the, the artistic output of the 1970s, yeah. which makes no sense. <laughs> uh, it's just being able to easily get your, get your hands on it, isn't it, Doc? Well, get my hands on it. And, you know, if I've got a long, if, if I've got a 40 minute bus journey or, you know, a, a 40 minute commute or 40 minutes to do something, um, I can get a whole entire album in, in that mm. time. And I no longer have to be selective about which cassettes I carry around with me. That's right. Yeah. So, Sheer practicality. Um, if yeah. Um, if it's the end of the working day and I feel like, um, you know what I'm going to do? Um, I'm going to go and revisit the third Jethro Tell album because I thought it was, that, that there, was, there was something worthwhile in there, but I, I, I haven't given it enough of a chance. That Because I have an MP3 player now, um, I can just pull it up on my list um, and I can just listen to that album right sure. now. Exactly, and yeah. I don't have to wait till I get home and then go diving for the LP in my archive box in the wardrobe and then... Probably by then I've changed my mind and I don't want to listen to it anymore. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, that's the state of the world. Um, after listening to the Iron Maiden album nine or ten times, do you feel as though you'll? Do you feel as though you're done with it now? Do you feel as, or do you feel as though you'll, you'll pull it out from time to time? I, I think it'll just kind of go 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 in like rotation, basically. So it'll just go kind of in my in my mega mega shuffle playlist basically and and if one of the track tracks crops up it crops up but i can't see i can't see it being an album that i reach for very often at all tell me if this happens to you because i'm increasingly like i've been listening to music semi-seriously for more than 30 years now and i can honestly say there are albums that have taken me 20 years to crack mm. Mm. um there are things that i greatly enjoy now and I probably acquired between age 20 and 25 and they had that thing of, well, there's something in it. I don't get it now, but there's something in it. So effectively I'll put a, a, a little yellow chalk mark on the corner. Um, and when I'm feeling brave or feeling ambitious um, or just feeling wild and crazy, I'll pull that out and listen to it again. And I, I'm coming up with a lot of albums like that that have taken me a whole entire 20 years to crack. Well, I'm, um, funny enough, Doc, just yesterday, just yesterday, Doc, me and my, one of my housemates were listening. We, well, me and both of my housemates actually were listening to um, an album that kind of qualifies for this criteria. I'm just pulling up the, the dates actually while I'm talking. Um, and that and that album is well, two actually by the same band. You've got um, uh, Alternative Four.
released in 1998 and the other album is called a natural disaster from 2003 so that's 18 years ago and 23 years ago Alternative Four is, is kind of the album where they stepped away from Death Doom for for, for good, um, yeah. And a Natural Disaster just kind of is three albums later when they when they have definitively left all that shit behind. Um, and I just ne- I never I never had any truck for their kind of post Death Doom stuff when I were a lad, but now I listen to it and it's absolutely sensational. So yeah, so you know maybe this qualifies, but definitely one of the recent ones. Um, was Soulside Journey by um, by Dark Throne. Which is their, um, their like officially despised and forgotten first album, which is death metal. It's not pure true cult black metal. Oh yes, uh-huh. um, and um, I ignored it because it wasn't pure and true and cult enough. No, you're and right. Sound, yeah. um, and <laughs> didn't go no. like that. You can't listen to that when you're wearing your corpse paint, can you, Doc? <laughs> um, but it's really good. I really yeah. like it. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So yeah, so you know uh, that, that anathema one. That, 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 that's a really recent, a recent example of it. Doc, Doc, we've been banging on for far too long, you know, and we've still got um, chow time, motherfucker, to do. I reckon that was our topic of, of the week for this week, Doc. I think that's sufficient. Let's get into chow time. Here we go. We've got. Oh, we've only got a couple actually. I thought we had more than that, but but still, um, chow time, motherfuckers. For those that don't know, is our kind of correction section. Chow time, C-I-A-O, les corrigements, information additionnelle, et les observations, bien sûr, c'est clair, non, c'est évident. Um, <clears throat> I asked for a title of a William Blake poem to recommend to the listener regarding the war ensemble lyrics, because you, you kind of referenced William Blake, but you couldn't come up with anything instant, instant. Is anything bubbled up, Doc, during the, in the intervening week? Um, I fully confess um, I have been busy this week and I've not had my English literature research head on. Um, oh, that's all right. Next, next week, promised. All right. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave that in the chat time for next week, Doc. Um, yeah. And um, lastly... The dog won't eat my homework next week. There we go. Exactly. That's it. Yeah, you got it. I referenced a Halloween album. Of course I did, because that's what I do. Um called Secrets of the Seven Keys. It's the wrong title. It is, of course, Keeper of the Seven Keys. And, and by the yes, way, Doc, right. by the way, Doc, there's a part one and a fucking part two to that. So get them both down here. <laughs> <your sisters. laughs> Either way, whatever it's called, it is an album by the funny assholes. Do you know what I think you're conflating there? Go on. Um, there is not an album, as we now know, called Secret of the Seven Keys by um, Halloween, but there's an episode of One Foot in the Grave called The Secret of the Seven Sorcerers. They say I might as well face the truth But I am just too long in the tooth So I'm an OAP and weak mean But I'm not yet quite gone to see over the hill now that I have retired Fading away but I'm not yet expired Clapped out, run down, too old to And you know, funnily enough, me and one of my housemates are currently embarked upon a full rewatch of One Foot in the Grave, so it's not out of the question that that was in my mind. <laughs> um... <laughs> It's the one um, where Margaret comes home and her whole entire house is full of stage magicians practising magic tricks. <laughs> That's right, yes. It doesn't Victor end up trapped inside a box for some reason when Patrick and yes. Pippa come round unexpectedly? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Very good. Um, no topic this week, guys, because me and the doc banged on for far too long about steely fucking Dan and Iron Maiden. Um, don't forget, though, you can contact us on Twitter at Vercast. Or an email at slaytanicvercast at gmail.com. Let's get on with the track. 
Welcome to part two of the show. Here we go. By now, you know, we just play the track, don't we? We pause it from time to time, and the doctor tells me his amazing theories. It's all good fun, isn't it, Doc? Here we go. It, so, today's track is, of course, track two from Seasons in the Abyss, which is called Blood Red. Let's go. <laughs> I like that um, that use of like that like discordant chord. They don't do it very often, do they, Slayer? They normally play kind of straightforward power chords, but there you've got the, like the discordance going on. I like it. Um, it's the flat fifth again. It, it, it came up before, and we um, I, I, I referred to it as the uh, the Voivod chord. Oh yeah, hey, very good. Uh, yeah, Voivod chord. Yeah, absolutely correct. Um, and I, I I think it's a flat fifth, mm, mm. Um, and it it um, it. It just sounds evil and discordant and nasty. If I wanted to make that noise on a guitar, I would put my put my index finger on any fret on the A string, and then I would put my my like my middle finger on the next fret down, but on the D string, and I think you'd get that. I think you'd get that noise, Doc. Um, I think you can just make a flat fifth chord by stepping single frets or, ste or, or, or stepping semitones and basically mm. make, it, make it so. If you start with an open E, then pay, play the first fret on the A string, the second mm. fret on the D string. That's it. Um, and you, you, you just do that incremental ladder, or ladder all the way up the neck. That's it. Um, yeah. You'll just get six flat fifths one after another. Yeah. And it sounds bloody, it sounds boss, doesn't it, Dak? I'm trying to reintroduce the word boss into the, boat, into, into the lexicon. I like it. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's make that our, let, let's make that our winter campaign. <laughs> Here we go. I think it's worth hearing that again, actually, for just you know, for that cool, cool ass intro riff, and then just that fucking pixel, the the, the pixel eye down down the strings. Here we go. <laughs> Sing again, Doc. You'd have thought he'd have learned by now. I was going to bring this up, um, mm. the, uh, particularly in that "You Cannot Hide the Face of Death" line, the first line of the second stanza. The, mm. there's, there's, there's a bit of singing going oh, on. No. I'm, I approve. <laughs> Definitely, there's, there's a whiff of, 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 of vocal melody there, isn't there, Doc? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm not ready to be condemnational yet, mm. but. Um, I'll be watching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we got we got our eye on you, Tom. I tell you the difference yeah. for me. Though, the, the difference for me between like, his vocal delivery here and on those two or three tracks on Saturday that really really annoyed me 
he's toning down the, the he's toning down the shouty nature, but but there's still like the, 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 he's he's somehow managing to retain the gruff kind of harsh abrasive edge to the voice. So even though it is definitely more of a more of a, a, a melodious delivery, there's still that bit of spike and gravel in there. So I think it works, Doc. For me, I'm I'm happy with it. It still doesn't sound, it still doesn't sound happy. No, it still no. You know, no. relaxed, peaceful. No, you know, it, it, on South of Heaven, it kind of sounded like you know some 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 pure blood Californiaites who spends all his time like jogging um, through the park. Whereas here, you know, it, it sounds like a bloke propped up at the bar, you know, with with with, with a tumbler of whiskey on his twentieth Marlboro the day, and that's the kind of guy I like. Yeah. Um... Is he wearing a sleepless denim waistcoat? Well, I certainly bloody hope so. I'd be very disappointed if he wasn't. Yeah, so would I. Yeah, here we go. Guitar work here is just so effortlessly fucking cool. I absolutely love it. That 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 chugged riff, that wow, doc. It's 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 it. That you know that they're they're carrying groove. Um, they've slowed down again. You know, um, I think after after war ensemble, there's that kind of you know that statement of intent based. We're back, baby, and instantly they've gone. Actually, no. You you thought this was just going to be a flurry. A full-on fucking blitzkrieg thrash attack. Hold on, hold your horses. You know we've got dynamics, man. There's a couple of things going on here. It's um, one of our favourite things in the world, and it's this classic combination of uh, yeah, sure you could play it, but could you write it? Mm. There's nothing wildly difficult going on here, um, but there's just a staggering amount of imagination that mm -hmm. goes into how you think of it in the first place. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming you can play the song. Would you like to comment for a little while on how easy or otherwise it is to play? Well, there's, I mean, there's nothing to it apart from the solo. There, you know, there, 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 there's absolutely nothing to it. I can't play Slayer solos. I don't even bother trying. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm only ever talking about the like the other the other lines, the other riffs when I talk about playing Slayer. Um, no, there's nothing to it. it it's it's an, it's a doddle. Um, you know, just as, as as long as you've got the the the, the, the double strum technique. Down uh, for that, doo -doo 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 that 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 kind of technique, and as long as you can roll your fingers down a fretboard a little bit, nothing to it. Yeah, um, so I, I I'm glad I turned out to be right about that. Mm. Um, actually, I always like it a lot when I make some crass comment about, um, oh, this is pretty simplistic, and then you have to pull me up and say, like, no, actually, it's insanely uh -huh. hard. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah but, but, like you know, some riffs are like that, aren't they, Doc? You know, some riffs do sound super basic. But conversely, you know, some things can sound like really, really super difficult and be, and be dead easy. Yeah. Um, here's a future topic of the week for you. Um, can you think of songs which are, I'm not saying they're designed to impress the norms, but... <laughs> How many songs can you think of that sound like they should be very difficult to play but turn out not to be? 
That's great. Um, I've topic just noted it. I've already noted it. That's brilliant. Yeah, that's a great topic of the week question. Um, so, and it's doing what Slayer have always done, but just kind of next leveling it a bit. Um, this thing of not exceptional or showy displays of prowess, um, but just having the confidence to write something really cool um, and then just stop and go, no, that's enough. That's yeah. all that needs to be done. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, because structurally, um, this isn't complicated, is it, either? No. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I sort of want to chalk this up as, as, as one of the massive strengths that Slayer have over nearly every other band in the world. Mm. Um, if you like, lesser musicians would feel the need to over-egg that or put more twiddle in it or harmonise the guitar parts or just do something that isn't strictly necessary. Sure. And I'm rapidly coming to the conclusion that a hallmark of a really good musician, and I don't just mean the people I like, a hallmark of an actually good musician is someone who can write something or compose something or come up with something. And they go, you know, you know what? That's fine. Just leave it there. Yeah. Yeah. Very often less is more, isn't it? When it comes to production, um, you know, just leave it the fuck alone. You know, yeah, you, you, you could over, you you could overdub this with, you know, you know, multiple lead lines, but, but why bother? It sounds so pure just by itself. Why bother? Precisely. Yeah. Um, you could dream, you could dream theater the fuck out of it if you wanted to, couldn't you? <laughs> you know what I mean? I, mean, you know, I, I absolutely fucking hate dream, dream theater, and that's part of the and that's part of the reason, Doc. You know, it just seems like an exercise in 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 vanity, you know, rather than actual musical craft. Yeah, and the peculiar thing is that I feel as though so many of the people that I imagine they admire would not have done that. No, no. Um, I. I imagine a, a, a lot of the one assumes progressive rock bands that they were putatively influenced by or they putatively like. I can't imagine many of those people. Those people are steeped in nothing classical composition to have this idea of, well, if you've written the thing that performs the task you expected of it, then, then, then leave it the hell alone. That's right. And if you find yourself increasing, like, complicating the time signature for no good reason or mm-hmm. harmonising for no good reason or having to multitrack for no good, then actually pr- probably what you need to do is to go back to the drawing board and rework that section because you're overcomplicating it. Sure, sure, Doc. Let's press on. Going on there, Doc. Obviously, we quite often play like the solo game. What, what do you think you heard there, Doc? Give me your interpretation for what you think was going on there. Um, I I was so obviously I've not been very successful in this game over the last several months. Months, 
Um, <laughs> that just sounded like a Hanneman to me. A Hanneman? Do you want to have a listen to it again? Um, yeah. And let me tell you, there are multiple solos going on here. See if, see if, you, can, see if you can figure out what's happening. It's tough, though. It is okay. Tough. Don't worry. <laughs> Um, right, I think it starts off with Kerry um, mm -hmm. up until the repetition of the main riff that starts gets off played Jeff. once. Starts off with Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In any case, after that repetition of the main riff, it yeah. switches to the other man. Yeah. Uh, and then I was convinced when the melodic part of the solo finishes and it goes into the Treya Zagthoth noises mm. um, and the police sirens and the tremolo bar abuse, near the, I assumed that was Kerry. Mm, mm. Well, you, you're and probably you're right. That wasn't Kerry, huh? No, you, but you're probably, you are probably right, Doc, you know, without really analysing it. But the interesting thing, there are four transitions there. So you've got five solos in total. So it starts with Jeff, goes to Kerry, back to Jeff, back to Kerry and finishes... With Jeff. Isn't that incredible, Doc? So you've got four <laughs> separate transitions. I think it's worth listening again and see if we can see if we can see if we can hear them. <laughs> So this is Jeff. I think that's the first change. So I think we're now in Kerry mode. I think we're now changing back to Jeff. Here we go. There's another change. Yeah, so who, who, we're back to Kerry now, aren't we? Um, I always assume those um, tremolo um, police siren noises and air raid sirens. I, I always assume those are Kerry. Yeah, yeah. We're back. We're back to Kerry now. Yeah. And there's the last transition. That high note. We're back to Jeff to close it out. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's so awesome, isn't it, just to be able to structure your track in that way. You know, the competency yeah. of, of the guitarists, the way that they kind of feed off each other. Um, it's, 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 Doc, I, I just can't think of another band like it. I fucking love Slayer, yeah. Doc. I fucking love Slayer. I assume when they play these tracks live, um, whoever isn't playing the solo has to pick up the rhythm part. Exactly, of course. Yeah, because otherwise the whole thing would... Or get all kind of Pantera or Metallica on your ass, basically. You know, yeah, you know they, they overdub so much on their fucking albums, they can't play the shit live. These motherfuckers can. <laughs> um, shall we carry on? Here we go. Let's close it out, Doc. We've only got 30 seconds left. 
Seasons in the Abyss. The track is called Blood Red. Overall thoughts, Doc? It's a great track. It's yeah. a fantastic track. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a perfect track for track number two on the album. Mm. I agree with you completely. As much as I loved the first one, um, I think at this stage of their career, Slayer badly need to be pushing boundaries and in a good way. Um, you mentioned a little while ago that, you know, sort of time, time heals and sometimes time can heal very, very quickly. And the last album we went through, by the end, we weren't very kindly disposed to it. And actually, even only a few weeks on from finishing up that one, I'm feeling a lot more kindly disposed to it. I'm feeling a lot more kindly disposed towards the, well, at least they tried aspect to it. Sure. And that was great. But they've set themselves um, a barrier now, which is not only do they need to keep on trying, they need to keep on trying, but succeeding more. Sure, yeah. And I can detect instantly just like a, a raising of standards in terms of um, just delivery on like musical competence. I mean, we're going to get into the lyrics shortly, of course, you know, but we've already like, dissected the lyrics to War Ensemble, which, again, seems to be like a raising of the bar. Um, I, 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 I'm getting the feeling that we... That, that, well, so I can't speak for you, but, but I'm kind of going to feel that Seasons in the Abyss is like South of Heaven plus, basically. I'm going to follow on from there. I'm going to say South of Heaven... Um, was like the, the blueprint for what Slayer want to do, which is an equal mix of stuff we know they can do plus experimentation. Yeah. The problem with South of Heaven is that so few of the experiments actually paid off. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, rock. Yeah. Um, I would have liked them to have spent a lot more time retooling the album and then done like a... This was done quite frequently in those days. Bands would hammer... Uh, would, would, would like pass out a um, like B-sides and outtakes compilation, um, normally for the price of a 12-inch, so normally for £3.99. Mm -hmm. um, or sometimes they, they, they just stuff it in the sleeve along with the album. Yeah, the one, the, the, the one, the one that comes immediately to mind to me is the Anthrax one, Attack of the Killer Bees. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which I've, I have quite fond memories of. Chromatic, I think, is a particularly fine tune on there. <laughs>
Anything else to say about the track itself, Doc, or should we, uh, should we dive into the lyrics? What do we reckon? Um, we always end up coming back to the music closer to the end of the show. So um, what I'm going to do is ask, shall we move on to the lyrics now? Um, and then we'll probably pick up some more stuff on the, the composition as we get closer to the end. Let's do that. Welcome to part three of the show, which we intermittently call Evil Speak. Here we're going to go through the lyrics and talk about them. Um, <laughs> first one. Evil combination, confrontation meet war machine seizing all civil liberties honest honest balotation among banshee spilling blood throughout humanity you cannot hide the face of death oppression ruled by bloodshed no disguise can deface evil the massacre of innocent people go on doc there's some stuff to get our teeth into there isn't there yeah, um, so I felt the need to uh, look up who uh, who wrote the lyrics to the song, and even mm. though it's Jeff, I think uh, I think Jeff has been having infusions of Kerry juice. Don't <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, yeah, they've, 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 they've you know they've, uh, they've been sharing a tour bus for the last eight years, Doc. It, it's better rub off. Yeah, um, uh, it's a bit of a shame it didn't rub off in the opposite direction, <laughs> like. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff didn't. Pick, Jeff didn't pick up. Um, Kerry didn't pick up some um, some Jeff influence in his lyrics. <laughs> um, what's this song about? Is is it just broadly and blandly about totalitarianism, or is it about some specific thing? I, I mean, I, I think it is. I think it's. I'm thinking of the time that it was recorded. I think it is like a general sideswipe at the at the concept of totalitarian governments, but I think it's also probably influenced by the like the apartheid regime in South Africa, but only really tangentially. That's very interesting. There's a a very significant line in at the end of the next two stanzas, which we'll get to in a bit. So I'm not going to mention now. Yeah, I needed to ask you whether it was well understood whether this was about. Um, in once again, it's a lyrical style I've come to associate with Kerry King. Um, there's some very interesting allusion here, um, mangled by almost subliterate use of the English language. Mm. Honest balotation amongst banshee, and it, with a bit more polishing and a few more rewrites. Um, a banshee is obviously uh, a spirit, uh, an, a, a spirit of Irish legend. Um, which uh, foretells one's death, or specifically the death or disintegration of a noble family. Um, and it squats outside your bedroom window and screams all night. Yeah. Um, and I'm really intrigued by the idea that the... Um, you often hear, like, democratic movements referred to as calls for this or, you know, a, 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 a cry of despair for this or... A, um, if you're right, if it is about South Africa, of course, there was um, 
a fairly famous film around about that time, which was Cry Freedom. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, of course. Uh-huh. Um, I'm very interested. Um, I think it's, it's, it's quite subtle and quite sophisticated that um, they've made this illusion about this, this, this sort of spirit, this um, harbinger of death. Um, I wondered whether whether it, it, it was explicitly about Northern Ireland, since mm. they, they, they've, they've referenced this thing that's explicitly from Irish legend and not anywhere else. Oh, that's a good point, Doc. Yeah, but so the honest ballotation, I mean, that, that just kind of means like, on, like corrupt free voting, doesn't it? I suppose that's, that's, what, that's what he's trying to say there, isn't it? Um, uh, no, I think it means honest ballotation. Um, I think it's a reference to the fact that democracy is basically mob rule. So, ballotation, are you familiar with that as a, with that noun, ballotation? Because I'm not. Um, I think it's one that Slayer have made up. They've made that up. Uh, That's not a word, is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's derived from the word ballot. Mm -hmm. um, and once again, um, it was it, very, very specifically, it was something you would see crop up in Irish Republican propaganda all the time. Um, if not the ballot box, then the Armalite. Um, so basically, either it's going to happen through voting or at the end of a machine gun? Yes. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me that there's, there's two very specific references that connote Ireland um, in this verse. Go on. They don't come up again, not mm -hmm. in the rest of the song. Um, so... I think what we're doing is probably spending one verse with a different example of totalitarianism or um, at least the imposition of a regime which um, certain indigenous people feel needs to be opposed. Mm -hmm. I, think that's a I think that's a relatively uncontroversial way of putting it. Sure. I don't think it can be argued that uh, British occupation of Northern Ireland is a regime, and I don't think it can really be uh, argued that certain indigenous people believe that it needed to be opposed. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm saying anything wildly controversial there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we might be spending one verse each with a different instance of this from different places in the world. Wow, that's interesting, Doc. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's true. That's why they've done it. it, 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 it I mean, obviously, the, 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 this is the most interesting line in this first section, the honest ballotation among, bang, among Banshee. Um... The rest of it seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? You can't hide the face of death, oppression ruled by bloodshed. Pretty clear, you know, we're just talking about like a police state, you know, where, where, where we, you know, freedoms are crushed under the jackboot effectively. Um, I do like this image, no disguise can deface evil. That's a wonderful, that's, that's pretty evocative, Doc. I like it. Um, it's pretty evocative. Um, it's, there's obviously some, um, just have to get into English teacher mode here for a second. Um, there's some pretty appalling actual use of English. Um, uh, oppression ruled by bloodshed. Um, why would the oppression be ruled by, uh, um, I mean, w wouldn't the oppression being, uh, be the thing that's doing the oppressing? Really? Would the, the oppressed by bloodshed. Yeah, the oppression, you know, oppression governed maybe, or oppression carried out by bloodshed, you know, or enforced through bloodshed. <laughs> Any of those? Implement. Yeah. yeah, implemented, exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's it. That's, that's what he's trying to say there, isn't it? Um, and, then, and then you've got that, actually, a, rather a nice kind of half rhyme. I'm sure there's a, I'm sure there's a term for like a half rhyme, 
no disguise can deface evil, the massacre of innocent people. It, 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 it works, Doc. It flows. It's nice. Is it, isn't it assonance? Uh, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't quite remember. I can't, I can't get it in my head. What, what the, there is definitely a term for a half rhyme, isn't there? Um, I, it might. It's where you get some of the same sounds, but it doesn't rhyme completely. That's it. Yeah, it, it, but it's um, close enough to flow. Yeah, I'm going to stick my neck out here. I'm going to say it's assonance. We'll, we'll, we'll put it in the chat time if, if, if you're wrong, Doc. I'll, I'll yeah. do, a bit of a, do a bit of digging in the meantime. Uh, I mean, once again, some, some forgivable but slightly wonky English here. Um, no disguise can deface. Deface has two meanings as far mm. as I know. Uh, it can mean to, to ruin, um, mm. let's say, by, by, by spraying graffiti across. Graffiti is the normal go-to, isn't it, for defacement? Yeah, um, and it can also mean um, melting down base coinage and reissuing it with identical-looking coins, but with a lower precious metal content. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in these days of fiat, com- uh, of, of fiat currency, you know, when people don't actually use gold coins that have the, scra- the same scrap value as face value, you'll normally hear it called devaluation. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it, 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 it happened a lot in French history, and you, you'll, you'll often find references to the, uh, the currency being defaced. Yeah, and of course, you know, the, the, you even just used the, the, an interesting term there, didn't you? Like the face value of, of money, you know, that, that obviously derives from the same source. And ob- obviously the fact is, like, the monarch would be the face on the coin. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very, um, very good. Very good, Doc. Uh, 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 do you want to give us the next few lines? lies, fear blinding your eyes, enforcing their truth through a gun. Aggressive discipline and barbaric control, thousands of people cannot be wrong. You cannot hide the face of death, oppression ruled by bloodshed. No disguise can deface evil, stains the primitive sickle blood red. What's going on here, Doc? What do we think? Um, well, if my first idea turned out to be correct... Let's 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 see what totalitarian regime we're, we're, we're visiting in these couple of verses. Mm. I'm going to skip right to the last line uh, because th- there's either some dodgy politics going on or there's something a lot more so. Um, Staying the primitive sickle is superficially, obviously, a reference to the insignia that's on the flag of the Soviet Union. Well, I mean, any any reference to sickle invokes the USSR, doesn't it? Surely. Um. Or does it? Um, is that what we're meant to think? Does it not also refer to a one of these things that you've got f- sometimes honestly in Africa and sometimes not, and then oftentimes quite dishonestly in South America where you would have a totalitarian, a totalitarian regime or a military regime take control under the guise of being a peasant revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be characterised by the worst violence being carried out using farming implements. 
Sure. I mean, you know, you only have to look to the terrible genocide in Rwanda for that, wasn't it? Where, where you know, where the weapon of choice was the machete. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if, if, if that's what there's a, a reference here to sickle. If, if I think of sickle, you know, two images come to my into my head um, because I do kind of flip the image in my head is sickle or scythe. I think it's the yeah. same thing. I could be wrong about that, but in my head, it's the same thing. And so when a sickle is invoked, it's either Russia or it's the Grim Reaper. One of those two things. Um, the different, um, a scythe is a much larger thing. Yeah. Um, and it's used for cutting wheat. So mm -hmm. a, a, a scythe would be on about a seven foot handle mm. uh, with two hand grips and you work it from the waist and you swing it left sure. or right. Mm -hmm. um, a sickle is a, a hand implement, probably about one foot diameter. And you would take a bunch of stalks in one hand and cut it off with the other hand. Same shape, um, though, right? Just, it's just the scale that changes. No, no, no. Um, a scythe is um, a long pole, so mm. typically the, the trunk of a small tree, mm. um, with a single, almost barely curved blade. I can see the scythe. Um, I, I, yeah, I know what a scythe is. I'm, I'm just going to have a quick Google image to, to, to actually have a look at uh, what a sickle looks like. A sickle is, uh, the, the blade is the shape of a crescent moon. And that's what I thought, the I thought. I thought the scythe was like that, you see. Um, no, a, a scythe has a, all, like only a very slightly bent blade. Ah, that's interesting, yeah. Children of bottom, I've got a lot to answer for. That's all I'm going to tell you, Doc. <laughs> um, so there's, um, there's a bit of weaseling going on here, honestly, Slayer. Um, I'm sh I don't know whether if you knew what you meant or not, but you're throwing an image around that's meant to make me think of the Soviet Union, but you're not describing anything that was actually done in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was characterised by maintaining its totality through a very subtle and very highly developed secret police network. Um, they didn't go in for carrying out massacres in public. They, they, they disappeared people very, very quietly, and then all trace of them went away. Sure, that's right. Um, it was much more um, kind of insidious almost, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, on the occasions where they felt the need to carry out genocidal acts, so say in the Ukraine, um, they'd just do it by means of starvation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it, um, they'd, they'd, they'd confiscate food and move people around to... Um, areas where there was no food, and they they very effectively starved anything up to several tens of millions of people to death, um, without having to leave any messy bullet-riddled corpses by mm. the roadside for journalists to photograph. Mm. Yeah, um, you're attempting to drop a reference to the Soviet Union whilst describing things that the Soviet Union egregiously didn't do. Sure. sure. Um, on the other hand people chopped up with farming implements is very much an associated image with quote-unquote peasant revolutions all over the third world throughout that period of time. I mean, all the way from Southeast Asia through Africa and South America. Um, so not quite sure what's going wrong here would, 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 or what's going on here. Would, would, would you care to help me out? Well, I'm struggling the same way. I'm looking at this line... Um... The first four lines, deviated lies, fear blind in your eyes, enforcing their truth through a gun. So their truth, presumably being like the, like the government forces in control, the totalitarians in control, aggressive discipline and barbaric control. 
thousands of people cannot be wrong. So who are those thousands of people? Are they the thousands of people who are being oppressed by this regime? Or are they the thousands of people actually doing what they're told and holding the guns against their own people? Who's, who's not right? Um, it's a fascinatingly ambiguous line. Yeah. Um, I took it to mean the thousands of people who constituted the party orthodoxy. Yeah. Um, who are subsequently oppressing the millions of people who are um, maybe not necessarily starving peasants. If we're talking about the Soviet Union, who are just com the, the common people who want to get on with their lives and not have anything to do with politics. Yeah. But, but we have this great disparity in, in, in the lyrics here because I, I kind of took it your way as well, Doc. I think those thousands of people are the, the thousands that are oppressing the millions. Yeah? Yeah. But in the line before, we've got this judgmental adjective, barbaric control. Um, and, and so those two things seem to be in conflict a little in my mind. I'm not sure they are in conflict. Mm. Um, what should we say? Um, the Soviet Union and its satellites were characterised by um, systems, barbaric is not quite correct, they were very sophisticated, but they were characterised by systems of social control that eventually became top-heavy. Um, East Germany famously ceased to exist, not because of, I mean, whatever the silly people who went to photograph the Berlin Wall have to say, the reason East Germany collapsed was it went bankrupt under the weight of its own secret police. Yeah. Um, so you had the thousands of people oppressing the millions but the government didn't trust the army either, so it had the secret police to, to watch the army. Yeah. Then it had an inner, a, an inner secret police to police them. Um, and I think eventually amongst the workers, uh, like one in five people were members of the secret police. Mm. Mm. I mean, um, it's the inevitable, inevitable consequence, isn't it, of any kind of police state? So who watches the watchers, basically? Eventually you get so many, so many strata of distrust um, the, the you know the the, the the kind of system kind of eats itself effectively. Yeah, I mean it, it's um, it's the one plot hole, and I know it seems churlish to criticise Orwell for minor plot holes, but it's the one plot hole I can never get away from in 1984. Yeah, uh, which is that there's nothing special about Winston Smith if he's mm. being surveilled, and we assume all of the anti-party members are being surveilled like that mm. as well. Mm. But that would mean that Winston. Smith needs three caseworkers assigned to him permanently mm. on mm. eight-hour shifts, watching him 24. So if all of the party workers have three caseworkers assigned to them, 20, and, uh, then that means the secret police is three times the size of the actual party, and then they need to watch. And, and the, the practicality of how you can do that, I just call into question. You're right, but isn't that the point? Isn't the point that like, I need to call him Wilbur Smith, the author? Isn't the point that Winston Smith is, is this kind of everyman? So if if he if he if he is being surveilled, then everybody is being surveilled. But that's the whole point, isn't it, Doc? It is it, the whole it, point. It's, but, it's a lampoon the ludicrousy of that notion. Um, but I mean, it's not Huxley, and it's not Anthony Burgess, and it's certainly not Brazil we're talking about here. It, it's it's not. 1984 is not set out to lampoon the silliness of a totalitarian regime. Mm. Um, it's set out to very deliberately explain how one is absolutely inevitable. Um, I mean, it, let's not forget, um, at the end of the book, the party wins completely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and um, as O'Brien says, like we, we can keep this up. It's, it's our plan to keep this up forever. Mm. Um, 
history is finished. Freedom is finished. Um, we are in, you know, um, we may as well stop the clocks now because nothing will ever change ever again. Sure. Yeah. Um, but implementing a system like that practically is absolutely impossible. Um, so I, I sort of added up how many people, how many agents Winston needs assigned to his case. And you've got three people who watch his telly screen and, his bug, and, and listen to his bugs all the time. Um, then you've got Julia. Um, then you've got Mr. Charrington, who's the guy who sets the trap for them, who um, rents them the, um, the bedroom in the parole sector. Um, then you've got O'Brien, who is a senior party member, who's in charge of the whole thing. And to get this one guy um, takes the consistent efforts of, of, of six people. How does that work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, really interesting, Doc. Really good question. Yeah, it, it, it kind of, I suppose, in, in like a modern equivalent would be, it seems that, you know, you know, like radicalized, uh, like the it, it, followers of Islam that seem to be on like the like MI5 watch list. It seems, you know, from what you read, these motherfuckers are being like followed by three or four almost like fucking secret agents 24 hours a day. It's what the fuck's going on? Yeah, I mean, that that's clearly impossible. Um, yeah, them. But there might well be a dozen or two dozen individuals who who have that kind of scrutiny. Um, I think the thing is, most of those people, there's always an outcry um, when one of these people gets through the net and does something terrible. Mm. Uh, obviously, the security services are not about to start bragging about the number of people they have su- successfully surveilled or the number of plots they have diffused or foiled. They do, but they boast about that about once a year, don't they, Doc? They release that number pretty much once a year, don't they, Doc? Um, about once a year, um, you'll get, like, one case. Um, generally speaking, competent security forces will fail between one in 10 and one in 100 times. Uh-huh. So for every terrorist who does something terroristy, um, every one person who they fail to surveil, um, which is quite a good rhyme in its own right. I'm quite mm-hmm. pleased with that. But every person who they fail to surveil, there are between 10 and 100 who they successfully surveil. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Doc, we, let, let's get the last four lines out of the way and then we can, and then we can you know, dissect it how we choose. Growing opposition with words as ammunition is the way he pronounces it, um, <laughs> expressions of life's liberties, aggressive discipline and barbaric control, spilling blood throughout humanity. That's kind of the end of the lyrics. There's, there's a bunch of repetition after that. So that's pretty much the end of the, of the lyrics um, as they stand. That shed any kind of light on it for you, Doc, those last four lines. I am going to, and disagree with this and argue with this all you want, in fact, I, I, I encourage you to do so. Um, I think this is a, a, a bit of a Metallica thing. Mm. Um, we're in the description of our third totalitarian regime now. Um, and effectively, I think we've, we've visited maybe Northern Ireland, then we've visited maybe... Um, uh, South Africa, I think we touched on. Yeah, uh, what, does um, it, here's a question, Doc, and this has just come to me. Does this is it? Does this predate 
Um, Tiananmen Square. Yeah. I think um, it does, doesn't it? I think Tiananmen Square was 1990, wasn't it? Um, it was in the run-up to the, um, with three sets of scare quotes, independence of Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> checking the dates. You, know, the you, 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 you vamp for me, Doc. I'm just checking the dates. Oh, I was just thinking uh, the irony um, has not escaped me that <clears throat> um, I was in Hong Kong around about that time and the the pro-independence movement um, who were talking very loudly about um, we can't be we, we we can't wait to be uh, rid of the colonialists and uh, we're truly Chinese and we can't wait to uh, be reun uh, reunited with our Chinese brothers and sisters um, changed their fucking tune a bit recently, haven't they? The Tiananmen Square massacre took place um, on the fifteenth of April, nineteen. Well, it, it, it's between the fifteenth of April, nineteen eighty nine. To the fourth of June, nineteen eighty nine. Um, so that obviously, like the escalating tensions between the students and the and the Chinese government were like a month and a half in duration. This album was released on the 9th of October, nineteen ninety. Doc, so I think that's plenty of time for them to have kind of absorbed that the, those those events into their into their lyrical position. What do you think about that, Doc? Um, yeah, except there doesn't appear to be anything in the lyrics about it. Mm. <clears throat> Growing opposition with words as ammunition. Um, you know, because that's what the students were doing, wasn't it? They weren't, they weren't, for, they weren't chucking bombs. They weren't chucking Molotovs. They were just sitting there with their placards and stuff, just using words as, as weapons against the government. Um... I don't remember any of that stuff being very effective, to be honest. I, I mean, it, it very clearly got far more attention in the news media outside China. <clears throat> um, oh, yeah. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying it was effective, Doc. I'm just saying it happened. Um, I'm not completely sold. Mm. Um, it, it, it just a thought that came to me, just as we chatted. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite buying it. You're not having um, it. The doc's not having it. That's all right. No. Um, <laughs> hey, you've, got this, you've got this line about uh, at the end, spilling blood throughout humanity. Yeah. I, I don't think anyone has ever thought that the Chinese government has much territorial ambitions beyond its own borders, have they? No, I don't think I mean, so. I, don't, I mean, outside of the South China Sea, I suppose. And, and I, I suspect people in Vietnam and Cambodia might disagree with you, Doc. You know, having having spent plenty of time there, they're not fucking happy about Chinese incursions. Ethnic politics of Southeast Asia are complicated. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's a great word. And, I mean, let's not forget that um, Cambodia, the ethnic Cambodians and Vietnamese have used the word Nung or of Chinese descent um, as an expression of racial abuse for people in their own communities for a long time. Sure. Um, far too much. I think if you don't actually come from one of those places, the subtleties of ethnic politics that, that, that happen around there are far too subtle to even notice. Mm. Um, I mean, Anyone who thinks, for instance, that the Khmer Rouge was not an ethnic nationalist movement, or anyone who thinks that the Pathet Lao was not an ethnic nationalist movement um, in socialist drag, um, well, I, 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 I'll disagree with you. 
Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I'd, 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 be, I'd be standing shoulder to shoulder with you, Doc, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm not even convinced that when you hear people use the word Chinese um, in that part of the world, at least a component of it doesn't just mean dirty foreigners. Mm. Yeah, but, uh, I've been to a place called Sienukville in uh, Cambodia. Sienukville mm. um, used to be like a real, a real kind of traditional, beautiful Cambodian uh, seaside resort. It's kind of like the, I suppose, like the, like the I don't know, like the like real or Blackpool of Cambodia. Um, okay. You know, like where the Brummies kind of go to, to you know, to get to the seaside. <laughs> um, over the last five or ten years, you know, it's been absolutely, um, you know, changed beyond recognition. By Chinese investments, building, starting to build like skyscrapers and casinos, and and and, and it, I mean it's just a building site. When I visited, it was just a building site, um, but but there, there was a little market, and there were there were plenty of like anti-Chinese um, propaganda kind of signs up and around the place, um, and and like refusal to take the yen, for example, you know, little, little kind of mini little kind of mini mini protests. People doing what they can, basically. Yeah, I mean. Uh- and I suppose the thing is that um, Cambodia is the one place in the world where um, you take the possibility of a real, actual peasant revolution very, very seriously now. Absolutely, don't? yeah, absolutely, yeah. Given their recent history, Doc, we started to run yeah. a bit long, I think. So, any 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 final thoughts on these lyrics? I think they're quite good, Doc. I'll be honest with you, they're quite good. They could have um, they could have done with a few more rewrites. Yeah. Um, that I will be honest with you. Um, I thought they were going to do a Metallica in this last verse. Mm. I thought what they were doing was effectively allowing us to feel a bit smug and giving us uh, that phrase again, a cheap holiday in other people's misery and taking us for a rapid tour around the world of all of the terrible regimes. And I thought they were going to loop back and describe a terrible regime to us. And then they were going to like pull the cloak off the top hat in the last line and reveal that they're talking about the US. Wow. Oh, yeah. God damn you, dirty apes! Discover Planet of the Apes. where humans run wild in the jungles. And the superior beings are apes. Do you realize what that means? No. Emasculation, to begin with. Then experimental surgery on the speech centers, on the brain. Then a kind of living death. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, uh, 
Planet of the Apes reference, guys, for people that didn't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was going to say, if they'd done that, I was going to say, oh, look, Slayer just invented that thing that uh, Rage Against the Machine went on to base their whole career on. Sure. Ah, very good. No, I, 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 I don't think they actually did. Um, it, whenever, literally whenever ethnic USians use the word liberty, um, I can't help but imagine that they're using it ironically right. or, else with excess, or, or else with excessive sincerity. <laughs> and, you know, this, this just goes back to um, what it makes me think of is that the, uh, the title of the, um, the Dead Kennedys album, where obviously they, uh, they repurposed a French, re- uh, 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 French Revolution slogan, and they had an album called Give Me Convenience or Give Me Death. And the original slogan was, give me... Give me liberty or give liberty, me death. Liberty, of course it was. Give me liberty or give me death. Donne-moi la liberté. Donne-moi l'amour. Yeah. Very, very <laughs> good. Let's move on. Welcome to part four of the show. Here we're just going to offer our final thoughts and summations and discuss anything that we might have missed along the way. I just used a French expression. I reckon it's probably me donner, not donnez-moi. But French grammatists, you get in touch with me and fight it out. I'll I'll have a fist fight with you. It doesn't matter. Here's some details. Writing credits for this album. Music by Jeff Hanneman. Lyrics by Mr. Tom Araya. Um, According to Setlist, this track was played by Slayer 252 times, putting it in joint 35th position. Um, first play was at The Chance in Poughkeepsie on September the 7th, 1990. I think we, we referenced that last week, I think, Doc, didn't we? So maybe this is the gig where yeah. they kind of trialled all of their their kind of new seasons material. Um, and the last play um, was on June the 4th, 2019. Somebody called, I don't know how to pronounce this, Doc, Arena Gilwick. Gilwich, G-I-L-W-I-C-E. I have no idea. I don't know. Um, Gilwice, Gilwich. I don't know. I don't know how to say it. Um, uh, 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 it's one of those Polish, um, Polish-influenced U.S.ian names, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, and it's from it, the, the, the Arena Gilwich is in a town called Gilwich, apparently. How, how would we pronounce it? Sorry, guys, we're butchering it. Anybody from, well, any listeners from Gilwich, get in touch and tell us how to pronounce it. It's the same spelling as Budweiss. Budweiss, um, yeah, Gilweiss. So, uh, I'll I'm go. With it. I, I'm. I'm going to say Gilweiss. I'll go with it, Doc. I'm happy. Uh, 
a good allowed wire. Uh, they put Blood Red as the 32 uh, position, the 32nd positioned uh, Slayer track of all time. Pretty high, actually. Um, and here's what they say. When Tom Araya tries to sing, it's never all too pretty, and it shouldn't be. Um, on Blood Red, he's still far from crooning, but his vocals are, are more polished than in past efforts, striking the perfect balance between shouting and singing. Instrumentally, this one seethes with a brooding intensity established in the opening riff, utilising a hiccuped gallop to drive the track. I agree with absolutely every word that that writer has just written. I must be honest. Yeah, I think they're spot on about Tom's vocals. That, that, he's found the balance now, hasn't he? He's found the balance. I don't want to go full on shout-a-thon, but I also don't want to sing. And he's just found that perfect, perfect blend. Doc, come on, final thoughts, sir. Um, here's something worth mentioning before we get too far into the album. Um, is this Slayer's first release on effectively Rick Rubin's solo label, Deaf American? Um, I don't know, actually. Hang on, let me have a look. Let me go and have a look at... Uh, let me open I think the... if it does, it explains a couple of things. Go on. Um, I think this was... That, that, that Deaf American became a, uh, a separate, uh, maybe for financial reasons. I never heard about um, Rick Rubin having a falling out with Russell Simmons, um, but I don't know whether Deaf American was spun off to be like Rick Rubin's thing by itself or whether it was spun off to be the rock and roll arm of Def Jam. Um, but that would explain why there isn't so much money knocking about as there used to be. We remarked that the production had gone a bit more lo-fi, um, which I chose to interpret as um, a, an implementation of Rocky's rule of crap gyms mm. last uh -huh. week. <laughs> so, That's right. Um, I, I'm going to suggest that this is Slayer's first release on F American. Um, as a You're right. Street. I'm looking at it right here, Doc. Yeah, Raining Blood was on Def Jam, South of Heaven, Def Jam, and then, yeah, Seasons in the Abyss, Def American. I must be honest, I, I just presume that was like a rebrand, but you're telling me there's more to it than that. Um, yeah, and I don't know what it is. Um, yeah. It's a, it uses a very similar logo. Um, as far as I know, like Rick Rubin and um, Russell Simmons never split up or never had a falling out. Yeah. I think probably maybe for tax or financial reasons, like maybe Def Jam was just getting too wealthy um, sure. as a company and, and, and getting too much attention from, um, from the tax man. Yeah. And they just decided to divide it into two companies. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I mean, there are, there are demographic concerns. Um, Def Jam was set up as a R&B soul hip hop label. And they, just to may, may have wanted to put some demographic distance between themselves um, and people such as Slayer. Because um, it, also... it, it kind of muddies the waters a bit, doesn't it? Because Slayer were a real outlier in the Def Jam kind of artist catalogue. So it just kind of muddy the waters in terms of what that label represents. Yeah, so we, we discussed this right back at the beginning of um, when we were talking about Rain and Blood. Um, I think, so Rick Rubin and, and, and Russell Simmons were partners in Def Jam. Russell Simmons was already wealthy because of other business interests he had in music. Um, and I think 
when they set the label up, they decided that they were just going to have the most extreme iteration of everything, mm. um, or the most radical iteration of everything. But yeah, uh, I mean that radical arm, that radical end of Def Jam, um, I think really ended up being an outlier. And I'm not saying an embarrassment to them, but um, maybe that wasn't necessarily maybe that wasn't where the Def Jam people thought that their their brand image ought to be focused. Well, I mean, I can ref, I can ref, ref this back to video games for you. Doc. You got you got a company called Ubisoft, I think French in origin, um, and they, you know, they produce some of the biggest games in the world, like Assassin's Creed and Far Cry. You know, some of the biggest um, video game franchises in the world. But then they've got this kind of little kind of offshoot. Um, which 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 produces like little well, doesn't produce but kind of finances and helps to publish little kind of indie projects. But they keep they yeah. they, 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 they make sure they keep those things very very separate. They don't want to confuse the like the Assassin's Creed players by you know worrying worrying them by the fact that maybe the next one would be like a little kind of indie offering. You know they keep them very separate. Doc. Sure. Um, and I, I think a, a smart accountant will encourage you to do this. So when, when you've got things like indie game, then I smell loss leader and yeah. I smell somewhere where a big and profitable company can bury some profits and hide Absolutely them. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all playing the tax game, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, once again, as usual, um, we invite expert opinion. Um, we ramble about stuff that we know a bit about, or sometimes we're completely ignorant about. And if there are any, if there are any tax accountants listening to this Slayer podcast, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, yeah, but please don't dig too deeply into Mo from Francis finances because he wouldn't be happy. Um, and besides, we'd like it much better if you could like get in touch with us and, and, and possibly explain how this might work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Any other thoughts, Doc? Or are you ready to penance? It's up to you. Um, I don't have any other thoughts. No, mm. Um, mm. this episode's gone off rather smoothly and, and and pretty uncontroversially, actually. Yeah, it's a good song, isn't it? It's just a really, really good song. You know, just rock solid, yeah. rock solid Slayer track, basically. Um, you know, slightly changed the the direction of. Maybe what you expected the album to take after the first track, um, but they've absolutely nailed it with change of dynamics and just and just provided a. a I, tell, I tell you, someone we haven't mentioned, Doc, it was Dave because I don't think this is like a killer Dave performance. No, it's not. Um, it's um, unlike on some of the other sub killer Dave performances. Uh, I just think. Dave is purposefully taking a back seat and letting the song do its own. I, I, I don't feel like he's in protest mode here. No, no, I, definitely... I, I, I didn't get that vibe either. He's it, it, just got kind of laying, laying the foundation, isn't he? Yeah. Um, I mean, and that's a, are... and sometimes that's the drummer's job, isn't it? Yeah. There were a couple of moments on the last album where I definitely, I, I definitely thought I could detect Dave in protest mode. Yeah. I felt like I could detect him playing badly. Yeah. A couple of, or at least a lot less well than he's very clearly capable of. Mm. Um, this track is completely different. I just think he's taking the back seat mm. and letting the others do their work. Yeah, yeah, and that's fair enough, isn't it, Doc? That's fair enough. 
Do you want to pronounce, Doc? Come on, give us your, give us your swords. We all, yeah, so, everybody in the world, every Sunday, looks forward <laughs> to how many fucking swords is Dr. L giving? Come on, we've waited long enough. Well, um, people, um, I know not all of you are observant Christians, but you might not even have noticed that we time this part of the show to give people time to get back from church. Correct. Yeah, it, it, it's, currently, it's currently 20 past 12. So, you know, the people have had, they've had 17 minutes since, since the end of the service. Surely they're back by yeah. now. That's right. Um, so this is what you've been waiting for. Um, my <laughs> fucking opinion. <laughs> um, I've, had to make, I've had to make peace with the fact that a compliment is still a compliment. For ages, I felt really bad about going, well, it's a really good song. It's a really yeah. good Slayer song. And, I really, yeah. and I, I've, I've had to make peace with the fact that there's, there's nothing wrong. or the, it, it, It's not down with faint praise. It's not being indifferent. This is one of those really good Slayer songs. And I'm yeah. unashamedly going to give it 7 out of 10. There. 7 out of 10 for the doc. Yeah, fair enough. And, 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 and you know what? I, I absolutely match it. And here's the thing, listeners. I feel... We've got a spreadsheet that we, me and the doc, gaze at together on our mattress in our basement flat in Croydon from time to time. And we gaze at this spreadsheet. And I, before the episode starts, I always fill in my score before it. And, you know, the doc's just pronounced seven liquescent swords out of ten. And it's also getting seven molder in most schools out of, out of ten. I, I'm in total agreement with you, Doc. Wow. It's just a... It's just... It's it's just, in quotes, it's just a really good Slayer track in it. Yeah. Yeah. You know. That's all. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Doc, are we done? We are. I think we are. Uh, so uh, there we go, guys. That, that, that's the end of the episode. Uh, uh, thank God for that, to be honest. Um, don't forget, you can contact us on Twitter at Vercast or on email at slightelevercast at gmail.com. Join us next time when we will be talking about track three on Seasons in the Abyss, which is, of course, Spirit in Black. Going to be there, Doc. Oh, yeah. <laughs>